0: The Fake Show Podcast is brought to you by The Law Firm of Hutchison & Steffen, The Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, The Tone Factory Recording Studios in Las Vegas, Moonshot.com T-Shirt Designs, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas.
1: It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty.
0: Sometimes I just can't believe my good fortune when it comes to the people that I have gotten to interview over the years, and Carol Kay is certainly right at the top of that list. She is the legendary bass player who kind of blazed a trail as the only female in a group of elite West Coast studio musicians who played on what would become the most influential records in pop, rock, and soul history from the 19. 50s to the 1970s. She invented bass lines that gave performers hit songs from Sinatra, Sonny and Cher, Glenn Campbell, Simon and Garfunkel, The Beach Boys, as well as TV and film hits like Mission Impossible, Batman, Hawaii 5-0, and The Thomas Crown Affair. But Carol's story really started long before moving into the studio full-time. Here we discuss the earliest days before working with favorites like Quincy. Jones and Brian Wilson. How have you been doing with the shelter-in-place deal?
1: You know, I'm an old lady. I've been around the the, the (laughs) horn a few times. (laughs) It does not scare me at all, but it scares me to see how many do get scared at really it's not that bad you know if they look at are just scaring people because they think that oh if you catch it you, you're gonna die in bad shape if you drink and you don't take care of your body if you you, you know you you other you, you, you over are overweight and you stress your heart out and lungs out and everything and doing what you're not supposed to be doing to your life sure you might die <laughs> you'll die of a heart attack you'll die of uh, eating sugar you'll die of booze you'll die of this and that, you know. So yeah, it it's people who are very ill uh, that very exposed to to that, I think. But you know, yeah. seeing the SARS, I've been through the other uh, uh, flu, flu epidemics that other people haven't seen before. You know, like, like a driver on the highway, I'm scared of people who who are scared of driving. I'm scared of them. You know, not not, <laughs> not driving.
0: It sure has brought all the the crazies out of the woodwork, hasn't it? Right,
1: right. <laughs> and I think a lot of that is is fueled. By the, the, I mean the media too, on a daily basis. Say, yeah, we're you're going to die if you don't wear a mask and all that kind of stuff. They, they they point that out constantly. We're being fed that by the news media. We're being trained by them. That's horrible. That's not right. You know?
0: I know that you live now. You're out right outside of uh, San Diego. Where did you grow up?
1: Well, I, I grew up in a housing project in, in Wilmington, California, right, 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 right on the port area there, because my, my dad brought us down here from Everett, Washington when 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 uh, when Pearl Harbor struck. see, So my, my dad packed us in the car and we drove down to, to California. And uh, he went to work in the shipyard. My my parents had me late in life. I mean, I, I wasn't even supposed to be born, you know, because it was so so late in their life. But anyway, but they had a, had a third kid, you know, and so uh and and so my, my, my parents c- couldn't get along at all. He, he, he was older, and he couldn't play anymore, and he uh, was, was about to lose his job in the shipyards because the war w- was ending. And so he he was t- terrible to my mom. I said, well, get rid of him. You know, make him get out of the house. She did, and then we we, we, we we struggled then, you know.
0: Your parents were both musicians?
1: Yes. Uh huh.
0: When did it get to the point where you picked up the guitar? How did that come to you? The first time?
1: Well, uh, li- living in the housing project, I- I've worked since since I was nine years old. Uh, I worked scrubbing floors. I cleaned apartments. You know, we were very poor. You know, we were just t- trying to put food on the table. Actually, yeah. my dad was out of state and didn't pay anything. You know, so uh, there we were. You know, blessed with nothing. And so my my, my mom had saved up some pennies. I I mean, she had saved up about $10, and then a steel guitar salesman came around with a steel guitar and some lessons. And so she opted... For that for me for I mean for, for 10 bucks and then I started to work at, after school for a guitar teacher who, who I didn't know at the time was was the very best uh, I, I used to take the bus into Long Beach you know which was nearby and and so uh, he trained me how to write music and writing down the, the music from the from the Goodman era and Artie Shaw and all that stuff you know and then he, he started to teach me guitar. And in about four or five months, I mean, I was good enough to go out and play gigs at at the age of 14. I mean, I only worked for him for about six months. And then at the end of that six months, I was able to go go out and play. And and I still helped them teach, you know. So I've I've been doing it ever since.
0: (laughs) How incredible is it that you would end up with that guy as your mentor? Because you could have gone to someone who really didn't know what they were doing.
1: Well, you know, if you read my book, he, he he is the father of my first child too. So it it, it didn't end well. Okay, <laughs> uh, but anyway uh, yeah yeah he, he happened to be the, the finest on on the west coast and had trained just about everybody else you know Howard Roberts and 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 all those people he, he trained them you know and and then I met Arnie Kessel through him and and and, and I met wow. Les Paul through him and, and like yeah. that so I mean so to me a little poor kid kid from the bad part of town uh, I mean it was really something, you know, so yeah.
0: Not everybody takes to an instrument, though, like like you did. It it almost seems like, in some cases, it's a gift, but I, I don't know if it was kind of a combination of things with you.
1: You know, Jim, you're, you're, you're in a music town. I mean, Las Vegas is a music town. We, we heard music on a day and night back then. Everybody t- t- traded in their computers and, I mean, an iPhone, on a musical instrument. That's how popular that that, that good music was that, that back in the late '40s and the '50s. You know, all, all during that period, you heard music day and night. You know, so your ears just grew. You know, and then, and then you take some lessons with a, a teacher who who teaches you the chord notes that you need to to learn, you know, not, not note scales. You know, note scales is for classical music, you know, but but the chord notes, the actual notes that, that, that you're going to form your, your 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 solos from and learn how to chord write and learn how chords move in tunes, you know. Then then the rock and roll kit came along and, and just simplified everything. It was three chords, see, <laughs> not, not a thousand chords to learn, you know. That's yeah. But anyway, but by that time, I was a bebop, where I had played in the big band, and I had had two, two kids, you know, to take care of, and my mom to take care of and 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 so i worked daytime jobs but then i accidentally got into studio work playing i mean playing guitar in the background of sam cook richie balance and all that kind of stuff you know and it paid a lot of money you know so i went went for it because you know it's a, a family to take care of and that's how we all did it most of those rock records have jazz players in, inventing the lines and, and playing on that stuff i mean you You hardly had a rock player on those rock records.
0: How did you transition, though, from being on the road playing this big band music? And and who was the person who kind of got you that first gig in the studio? And were you initially a little bit maybe not uh, wanting to do it?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did not want to play rock and roll. You know what? When you're a fine bebop player, you're playing right. You don't want to go boom, 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 boom. You know, from that to that, no way. But the money was good, and and the players were were from the jazz world anyway, so we would kind of wink at each other and and do it, you know. And and the music wasn't so bad, and it was. Bump Blackwell, whose band Quincy Jones and Ray Charles got got their start in, who 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 had had some hits out on Ray, uh, on, on on others, you know, like Little Richard and and, and people like that. And I met Sam Cooke. Uh, I played. On his second or third hit, not not his first hit, but he asked me to do a record date when he heard me play some jazz with with the um, Teddy Edwards group, you know, like Billy Higgins, the drummer in it. That's how great the musicians were back then, you know. And so he asked me to play guitar because it it turned out that that he had a fight with, I mean, with one of the guitar players and he needed somebody to play Phil. Well, there, I mean, there I was playing solos and everything, and, and he loved the way I played. I didn't know it at the time, but but he was a very fine jazz vibe player, too, you know. So he hired me to do dates, and I got paid more on that first date than I ever made in in the daytime as a tech typist, you know, uh, for for a week. So the money was there, and I thought, well, you know something? I've got two kids and a mom to. Take care of. I'm going to go for it. And It was pleasant.
0: By the way, Carol, I'll, I'll bet you were a really fast typist.
1: Yes, I was. <laughs> I, you know, but when, when, when your when your kids are, are dependent upon you, you're going to do your job well.
0: Right. And I did. Right.
1: I, I worked days, and then I played nights. You know, had, had they known that I'm playing with some of the guys that were smoking pot, doing drugs, in the all back right, field, right. not have me typing the missile manual, de- being cleared with a black button, I mean, for top secrecy. <laughs> but you know what? I, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. I saw all that. I'm not going to do Something that I know is going to kill somebody standing next to me. I used to have to play fills to fill in where I knew that the drugs had kicked in and he couldn't do his uh, solo right. So I'm just saying that it's all by ear. If you grow up with music, you're going to play music. I'm talking not, about real music.
0: Not to take a right turn here, but you have played with enough of these guys in the jazz clubs. Black jazz musicians, Th- they, they the yeah, and if there was drug use, if there. Was pot and and other things that were a lot.
1: Not 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 all, but I have, I have seen the do the, the uh, they did what, what is called hash. It, it's a, it's a form of drug that that they have a little. I don't know that it's. it's, it's it's something with bubbles. I don't know. I sat out in the front and saw they did their thing in the back room. I was,
0: My point being that, and I've heard musicians say this before, that it was their way of dealing with the racism of the day that was going on. They needed to chill out something? from that.
1: You're absolutely right about that. They were real men when, when they could play jazz and and, and we're admired for it, see. And, and I, I thought about this later on because I thought, well, why, why was it so easy for me? It was easy because I wasn't prejudiced. I used to go as a little kid. I used to go take the PE cars. Since I'm making the money in the household, my mom couldn't do me anything, couldn't tell me anything. I'd take PE <laughs> e. right. from Wilmington to Los Angeles to hear the Duke Ellington band. I'd be the only little white white kid sitting in the front row there. I'd wow. love the music. Yeah. Just I, I felt the music, you know, and I think playing with me and me, me playing with them, they, they, I mean, they knew that I could play, you know, because the crowd told me they, they, they loved it. Here, here, little white girl, pretty white, white girl with blonde hair and everything, and I carried that guitar in and I played it like a sax or something, you know. But I'm not the only one to do that. There, there were a lot of women throughout the years, white and black. That could play some, some just as good as the men you know so it was easy for me plus i felt that that these men are playing because they're being accepted as men this way you know and, and i didn't know right. i didn't think about it i just felt it i just felt it you know and they were good people and, and i knew not to date them because you just didn't date anybody like that at that time you know that it was uh you, i mean you knew about the prejudice you know you they, they lived in the south part of la where they had the finest clubs and i lived in the north part of la you know that kind of thing so you, you know but i was safe down there and people dressed up in suits you know they were all working i mean everybody was working in the aircraft industry you know they, they i mean they were building those jet airplanes and, everything, and and the missiles and all that, that stuff, you know. And so th- th- there was money down there. You didn't see the drugs or the fear of, of crime, you know, like you do now. You know, it, it, it all changed later on.
0: So the clubs were a great situation for you and a great place to go. But at, at the same time, when you started to get those studio gigs, were the jazz clubs kind of starting to fall by the wayside? Where Was their time kind of coming to an end?
1: Yes, you're, you're absolutely right about one by one. And I'm talking about about a hundred or so clubs in Los Angeles, which is all all spread out. You had to have a car to go anywhere in, in L.A., you know. So you you went from this club to that club, and you drove, you know. But one by one, the rock and roll started to happen, and, you know. And then they were closing down one club, and then they'd reopen it as a as a rock club or something, or I mean, or a comedy club. I mean, there's some some of those that. that Still there that, that that was fine. Jeff uh clubs, too. Big, big clubs. They were big clubs. And we all worked in, in those clubs. You, I mean, you didn't make a lot of money, but the finest, you know, like Hampton Hawes Hamp and, 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 and all those people did not make much more than you did, you know. But everybody loved the music. The feeling was love everywhere, you know. We all played, and, and it was fun. And, and then the studio work at first was fun, too, because you had people who loved the music. I mean, like Bumps Blackwell and, and, and others. Team Records w- was where they had uh, Herb Albert and Lou Adler, Sonny Bono worked there as a Sonny was a messenger guy, you know. There, right. so they they all learned from Bumps, you know, and and it was a hubbub of activity, you know. You, you had the groups that that went through there too, you know, and and we all played music for the group and mostly jazz players. See,
0: Carol, when you first went into the studio, you were playing guitar at that point and not bass.
1: Guitar for many years, for about six years, years. Five and a half years, you know. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of hits on there. And then when I got married again, I tried very much to please the, the second husband, and um, I had the two kids and the husband, and he did not want me to work with the black men. He he did not like that, so I had to cut. I would have to say no a lot of the time, but I'm the one that brought the most money in the household, you know, because I had the two kids and it was important that I took care of my my own responsibilities with the kids. But, but I mean, but eventually, uh, after I had a third child, then then. It's about that same year that I accidentally got placed on bass when the bass player didn't show up. And so I started playing bass. I thought, you know what, I don't like to play rock on guitar anymore. The, the, the 12-string guitar and banjo, and I was playing all those instruments. And, and I'm getting tired of it. And as soon as I played bass, I felt the power on the bottom. And then, and then they loved what... What I'd invent on the, li- I started inventing lines all over the place. And they loved that, <laughs> you know. Cause I-, I had a blast then playing bass, you know, and it was fun. But it was the right time, right instrument at the right time, you know. And so I started to invent lines, and that's what happened, you know.
0: It takes a, it takes a little bit of strength though, doesn't it, to play the bass? I mean, I don't know, I don't care who you are.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it, it, it takes the technique of feeling the instrument too, because the instrument's not built. For your body, uh, you have to twist your torso to play it and, and keep your left arm way out and stuff like that. So, you do a lot of different things with, with your technique. Change your technique to to agree to the instrument so that you can last for hours in the studio. I used to. It wasn't a boom, be, boom thing. It was bump, do, 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 do. You know, you're playing a lot of notes, so you have to be able to do it. He, he, they, they wanted me to play with the pick, of course, because it it, it started that way with about t- three other players. They started playing with the pick. on flat wound strings, and so I did the same thing. But the line that I, I came up with created mostly a framework around the singer and the style of music and w- whatever the rest of the band was playing. Now, you have to understand, uh, at the time that I started playing bass, they were using three bass players to get one bass sound. They were using a str- string bass, upright, and the standard bass. And the Daniel, I mean, 16 guitar for that Clicky sound. Well, I accidentally got all those sounds on one bass, you know. All so right. they, they, they could just hire me and sit. sit. <laughs> Plus, I, I was a good pro. You know, I was there on time. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do, do drugs or anything like that, you know. So, so I was there on time. They could trust me. And then I'd, I'd come up with some, some good bass lines for uh, answers. The statement answer lines you know to create in back of every style song that there was
0: i think it was you who said that uh, your good friend drummer earl palmer liked oh, he, earl like, palmer. he liked your playing so much but he said be careful not to not to rush as we go in the studio here with your timing
1: <laughs> we would catch each other all the time. You know, he'd say something to me, and I'd say, well, fuck you. I'd you know, i, 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 I get back. But I loved Earl from the very moment I played with him in 1957 when I did my first guitar date. We, we got in sync immediately, and we d- became f- fast friends. You know, I didn't know much about him. You know, he, he's a nice fella, and he could really play with a great group. I loved Sense of time. Then I played with with, with some other drummers whose time wasn't that good. You know, you you learn to appreciate somebody who, who can groove from beat one. You don't have to worry about the time that you're not fighting somebody to keep time going because without great time you don't have a groove you know and without a groove you don't have a hit record without a hit record you're not going to be able to pay the bills see so we we all worked hard to to make sure that that the recordings were great and and earl was not only a great guy but a but the number one, one drummer from New Orleans, who, who who could bring those kind of beats to the records, you know, and and he was he was great. He was a good person too.
0: But how was it that you would end up playing for Phil Spector, and what was that experience like?
1: Phil was a young guy. You 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 knew he he was pretty young, and he and he had had some good ideas. I met him when I did a a jazz uh, uh, show at a prison. Isn't that funny? You know, I did it at, at the prison because he, he and his little group was playing uh, some rock hit or something that he had cut. And we, we, we okay. come in as a jazz band and he comes up, up up and introduces himself. They said, do you do studio work? I said, oh, yeah. You know, I had been doing studio work about two or three years by that time on guitar. He, he, he loved my guitar sound and all that stuff. So he hired me. And he was all, all right. I mean, I liked his mother more than him, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know because she was very, very nice, you know. But he, he, he was always nice to me and nice to my kids. I bring my kids on his date, too, because by that time, I, I was getting a divorce, and I wanted my kids to know that I have to work a lot now. This is what I do. So I take him to to the record date. And he was very kind to my children. You know, I like him for that.
0: Oh, that's definitely a plus right there. Well, so you played on, what, the righteous brothers you've lost that love and feeling
1: yeah i just played chords uh but but again like i say if the beat isn't happening and sometimes he used to dump the echo in our earphones and we we didn't have the we we didn't have any way to control it in in the earphones so he dumped a lot of echo in there and and i'm looking at earl and earl saying (laughs) (laughs) you know we, we we pulled the earphones off of one ear but anyway, on a slow tune like that, there's a tendency to drag a little bit. So I'm, I'm trying to chuck a chuck a chuck a chuck on the guitar to hold the beat going. And then in, in the bridge, I, I joined with the bass player to go bump, 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 bump. bump, bump. And I said, Here it is, Ray, come on. <laughs> you can do it.
0: <laughs>
1: Try to keep it. The, the beat up and it seemed to work you know whatever I did on guitar he fed into the to, to the earphones and it seemed to help you know so so it, it it was that that kind of thing you know so you invent your all, all kinds of rhythms and lines and stuff on guitar and uh, and I did a lot of twelve-string work. I mean, the twelve-string that you hear in the study and, and the share things that that that's being, and then that was my baseline on that so that I figured out for the uh, the beat goes on. Because here's Sonny, and couldn't sing, and he knew it too. He he just he 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 <laughs> yeah. kid about it, you know. We we kid him too, you know, and he was nice to work for, you know. Except he 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 wanted us to create a hit on that one chord tune. I mean, called the beat goes on and the bass line was going boom de boom and i'm playing the piano, and uh, bob west was on the fender bass on that and we we were playing that line together now bob was a very fine jazz bass player from the same scene and that's frankie cap on drums by the way very fine jazz drummer on that hit record it wasn't hal blaine it was Frankie Mm -hmm. Cap on that. And so we were going boom-de-boom, and he's singing, uh, and the beat goes on, and the beat goes on, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and nothing happening. So about the third line I came up with, we all started to invent lines, but the third line I came up with was that Bum, 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 bum tune yeah. came alive. I said, oh, man, look at that. I'm not <laughs> bragging about it, see. I'm, I'm just it's wondering, wow, that that was amazing to hear. One little piece of music makes such a dumb tune happen. But
0: it's, <laughs> 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 it's a great bass line, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was and, amazed, and, you know. And, to go back to Spectre for a moment, because I always loved Ike and Tina's "River Deep, Mountain High." I mean, I really thought that was a masterpiece, and again, a, a great live. yeah, and a great baseline. For some reason, it didn't catch on with the uh, the general public, but and it also seemed to be kind of the end of uh, Phil's run, didn't it?
1: Yes, it did. He he changed after that. It just killed him. That that it w- w- was not a number one. It was a, a number one in the UK. The people in the UK loved it, but not yeah. not the people here. I think it was the end of that sound of the of the echo. P- people get tired of certain sounds all the time, and it was just and it, it had a good run. And, uh, but you know, when we did that date at Gold Star, uh, there were a ton of people in the booth. It started to feel like a party. You don't do a hit record if there's a party there. It, uh, doing a hit record is always a business. You go yeah. in, you don't think of anything. You don't want the people around. They didn't even have the songwriters in the booth at all, because they would get ideas and they tell the, the, the sales, oh, well, they should do this on my song and all that stuff. You know, so they didn't have songwriters in the booth, but they had everybody in the booth at that thing. And I started to get a funny feeling about it. I said, this is not right. But anyway, we we got a good groove on it, and that's Earl Palmer on drums again. And and the bass line was written. I don't think I added anything to it, you know. So uh, Gene Page did the uh, arrangement on that. You know, now Gene Page that later did a lot of the Motown hits that we played on, too, out here.
0: Carol, what was the first Beach Boys album you worked on with Brian Wilson? I, I think it was all summer long, but I'm not sure about that.
1: Boy, you know, I don't know. Um, when you do dates, you do songs. You even care of what happens to the songs afterwards. You, <laughs> song, right. you walk out the door, you forget it immediately because you, you have to run to the next date of the day with a, another group of songs that you have to invent on. So you you, you just do the track. Now, Brian would would do one song per three-hour day, see. It's very boring for the most part, you know. But he always used the two basses. He used the string bass and me on the Fender. He'd keep the Fender up so much that sometimes Lyle Ritz would say, I'm playing the notes, but I don't hear myself on the bass. it's terrible but it, it, he was there it, 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 you know he, he loved to work with two, two basses, and he wrote the music he'd bring it in the stems would be on the wrong side of the notes you know you could tell that he had no <laughs> training and how to write music but his parts were there and he wrote all the bass lines he Come in. He'd, he'd pass out Brian would pass out the music. He'd, he'd sit down at the piano and play the tune to, to give us a feel for it. And then he'd, he'd go in the booth, and the rest was done from there. See, it's, you know, I don't know which ones are played on.
0: No, I am. It makes sense. It's almost like a disposable business. But I just know that when I was a kid, and, and my older siblings had beach boys albums and i would listen to a song like girl don't tell me and i could i could tell then how much more sophisticated that song was than the stuff they had done before that before they used you know all of you
1: he grew with every record date the first stuff was go little honda you know that kind of stuff Ba 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 brand you know that you know that simple stuff but his musical aptitude a- i think it's his ears that just grew because he he he'd hear us jam sometimes we we we'd get a quick jazz jam going he he loved that he he loved to listen to us play but we, we were just trying to play just for, for a, a minute or two while he's trying to figure out what to do in the booth, you know. But I think being around us, and we accepted him because the kid had some talent. You know, he, he wrote the music, he brought the parts in, and he had some sounds that, that were amazing, you know. So he he, he said he loved jazz. He, he listened to jazz sometimes, and he uh, was was into that singing group. Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of them now. Uh,
0: the f- the Four Freshmen, I think he the liked. The Four huh?
1: Freshmen. He loved the way that they sung, and, and, and he was into the four-part harmony. Rock and roll was, was mostly three-part sounds, but he, he heard the chords. He heard the major sevens, he heard the ninths, he heard the thirteenths, and the, the choice of notes that he would write for the bass, I even uh, heard one track of a few years ago when I listened to some of that stuff. There was one track, he had me playing a major seventh on the bottom. Now, who writes that, you know? A key to, to the dough of the chord.
0: When you stepped in the studio for those Pet Sounds sessions, did you get the feeling that it was a game changer or was, just, or was this just another thing for you guys?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just another thing for us. But after a while, it got to be that to, to work for him was a pleasure. And, and we knew that he, he was creating a hit with everything. So the, the top dates were either to work for the Beach Boys thing or, or for Quincy Jones. You were going to hear some, some great music, you know. So that that was the way that we felt after a while. Because he kept, with every date he got better and better and better. And pretty soon he was uh, writing some sounds that we, we, we just couldn't believe. Here's this kid that didn't know how to write music well, writing some sounds that were out of this world, you know.
0: And I know that everyone talks about songs like God Only Knows or Wouldn't It Be Nice or Caroline No, but the two instrumentals on Pet Sounds, which were Let's Go Away for a While and the mm-hmm. title the title track, Pet Sounds, were just extraordinary to me. I mean, and I know that there are songs that I think Brian has said that Let's Go Away for a While was one of the most satisfying things he ever put together. Wow.
1: Wow. Well, I didn't know that, but yeah, it, 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 it makes sense, you know. He was writing what he heard, and I think with, with his, his vocals, too, I think he was in touch with the feeling of the kids that, that were growing up in the 60s. Remember, that those were some tough times. You had the r- racial things going on, you had the war going on, you, you yeah, had yeah. the assassinations going on, you had some pretty weird stuff going on in the 60s, and, and to grow up in that fall in love and try to date and go to school and try to na- make some sense of it all, he made sense of it all with his music and, and, and the way that he, he had the lyrics going and the sounds and everything. And, 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 and he brought it together in such a way that I think it was like the music of the 60s back then you know so he 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 inspired a, a lot of people and he inspired us we, we we liked him we we loved to work for him even though it was a song a, a date you know it was a long time on one tune during a time that we were doing three or four or five tunes per three hour date, but he only did one song, but it was so special the way that he had written music and and he himself was special he he was funny, you know he he'd crack up at his old talk and stuff like
0: that
1: <laughs> we were in the booth one time, and he he played us a track of just him. Singing uh, all, all the part, and and no, no band or anything, and we listened to this. Bonnie Castle, you have to watch him because he'll say anything. And he and he turned around at the end. And he, said, he looked at Brian. And he said, "Brian, I take back everything I ever thought about you."
0: You <laughs> <laughs> should have seen the look on Brian's face. To <laughs> 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 so think about that. Did you see any of the the pushback that the band? Because the band was on the road when Brian had put this together, and when they got back and started recording the vocals for it, were you there? because i know that they weren't exactly happy with it not being hot rod stuff and and you know surfing songs and
1: well no being unhappy with that you, we always knew that when they'd come in and they they, they would come in to listen to the track of when, when they were in town that they'd come in and listen to the track that, that brian did you know they'd listen to for a few minutes, and they'd crack a few jokes, and then they were gone, you know. We thought, yeah, I mean, they'd gone to the bank to to, to count their money,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: they, they loved it. They seemed to love it. I mean, we never heard any uh, – uh, how, how Blaine likes to say a few things, like he was in charge of this or he knew this. No, no. You know, he, 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 he exaggerated a little bit. He yeah. used to like to say, well uh, – the father came in and had a fight with. we never saw the fight his father would come in and visit the date, he was fine but yeah, I heard later on about the overdub Vogel date when, when he had a fight with his father because his father came in drunk You know, PTSD from World War II anyway, just about most of the, the, those guys who fought in that war did you know, that, that's yeah. why you see bars that were built in the homes in the 50s, because <laughs> t- people drank, you know, they, they he drank like fish back then i I'm not naming excuses for him because he did hurt the kids he he beat Brian you know my parents beat me, but I don't know of anybody that didn't grow up that weren't beaten back in the thirties and the forties you know that that was the yeah. way that life was back then. So uh, I'm just saying that's the way it was but we never saw what, what Hal Blaine talked about, about the gold wreck trying to give away its gold record never, never saw that at all you know, his, his, his father was very nice, in fact, his father was so nice that we worked for him too you know.
0: Interesting, so Carol I you know, we've all heard the stories of bands like the Monkees who wanted to play their own instruments in the studio and were you aware of that pushback? I mean, you, you, you name the group, if us that did the records for them. I know this that the Birds Roger McGuinn could play a pretty good guitar and so he would be part of it.
1: Studio guy still did his stuff, so far. uh The rest of the group, if there's any group of the 60s, we're it. We're them. And, and it wasn't just a certain set of, it was never a band. It was hundreds of studio musicians that that they'd hired one by one to, to be that, quote, band. See, the, the the people that grew up in the 60s think of uh, musicians as a band because that's what the music uh, magazines called it. They they, adver- they would advertise the rock band, you know, playing on the stage. There. They had no idea about the studio musicians. There's always been uh, been us playing in the background since, since the 1920s in, in movies and, and the record dates and stuff like that. But they just never heard of us, see? So so they get the wrong impression about band. As a studio business, you're not a band. <laughs> they, they hire you to play on this date and that date. You mix with everybody. See?
0: Yeah, I guess that's uh, part of the reason you'd see these a lot of these bands lip-syncing their material on Ed Sullivan or Hullabaloo. Or...
1: Oh, yeah, it's funny. It's funny. When the Nilly the Nilly thing happened, we thought, okay, well, they're going to find out about us now. But they never did. <laughs> right up. See the PR in those days was talking about the band so that the band could get out there on the stage and get hired. To, to, to if they were on the stage, they sold a lot of, of records too that way. See, they're not going to go on the stage and say, "Oh, sorry, but we didn't play on our own records. We we didn't do our own records." They're not going to say that, no. You know, so it, it, it was a hush hush type of thing, you know, to have us do their dates for them. We were glad because the money was coming in and the music wasn't too bad. But by the end of the sixties it got bad. It got kinda of dumb, really dumb. And, and and they weren't using the horns anymore. They they would hire the the I mean the rhythm section to come in, create a basic track and then they, they would get ideas from us, and then they write it for the strings or the horns, which w- they'd overdub later. So it, it was the start of the end
0: of the 60s. And what did you do then when you transitioned out of that uh, studio life? About
1: 69. It was getting so bad, and, and the guys were cutting up that they were kidding about their Cadillacs and their rings. And they were saying, oh, on, on, on my diamond ring, I see on Channel 4, there's a typhoon in China. You know, <laughs> they're talking about that cadillacs and stuff it wasn't about music anymore uh it it was about the money and and the the soup started to happen that there were people not not like bumps blackwell or lester sill or these these kind of lee Lee hazelwood and these these kind of producers not like Balfour and these guys that, that, that really loved the music. They had the suits coming in to, to run the record companies, and it was only about the bean counting. It was just about the money, you know, and about that time, the guys were kidding, kid, and I couldn't stand to be around them, too, some of them, but by that time, so 69, 70, I started quitting, and I came back to do more because I loved the film work, you know, the I loved working for uh, uh, for I mean, for Lalo and, and uh, all, all, all the films people, You know, the film music was great, whether it was a movie or, or the t- TV show, and I had been doing it I mean, since Mission Impossible, the middle of the 60s, I cut that, you know, and, and it was fun music, you know, it was great music. So I came back and did that. But I had my books written, my books were selling hot worldwide. Uh, they were in all the schools, and, and then I, I was doing seminars, I was doing some teaching, and then I did the, the, the concerts with Joe Pass there for a while, and then with Hanson yeah. Haas, and that was fun. That was playing jazz again, you know, a, a form of jazz. It wasn't the bebop, but but it was good jazz. It was good music. I had fun with that for a while and I got married and then again and then I got crippled up for a long time so I couldn't play there for a few years but but you know I, I had some surgery and I was back playing in, in the 90s you know.
0: Is your autobiography still available? Is that possible to pick that up somewhere?
1: Yes it is it's on my website it's 502 two pages but it, it has my work long and it talks about all this stuff and, and, and the business part of it too because that's very very interesting what happened later on you know so anyway yes it is uh, Carol Carolk.com. You gotta put the www. then Carol K is spelled C-A-R-O-L-K-A-Y-E. the E on K, not Carol.
0: Are you fully retired? Are you still teaching? What are you doing right now?
1: Oh, I still teach. I still. And interestingly enough, I've always been trying to get back to jazz playing. You know, and I went back to play some jazz after I had my surgery. I felt pretty good. You know. And I, and I played, and I taught jazz, and interestingly, now, people don't want to learn rock and roll, they want to learn jazz. <laughs> you know, so the, <laughs> the, the, the former rockers are learning jazz. And yes, they can learn jazz, because I teach it the way that we always taught it in the 50s, the way that we invented our lines with. And that's playing the patterns, and it's from chordal tones, you know. So anyway, and it's fun to, to see them learn. I, I love to pass it along that that's what you do when you get older you try to pass along whatever you learn because the the feeling of music is what we need right now my god you oh got boy. A fear out there and the only thing to pull us back will be music you know because you can't lie through music you you know you start playing music and, and you find yourself through it too you know and you and, and you play with others and you start having fun then say so that's it that, that that's what we really need now
0: Carol all, all I have to say is thank you so much for the joy that you've given us over the years thank uh,
1: you Jim for your questions I love your questions because you get it you, you know what it was like for the studio musicians and you, you know it. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much.
0: Well, I've interviewed enough rock stars over the years who keep telling me, no, we played that stuff. <laughs> and, I, oh, and, I, and I know damn well they didn't. They didn't. So I've listened to your music almost every day, and I and I feel uh, so much the better for it. It was just an honor talking to you.
1: Well, thank you. But but, but the guys, the guys were great to work with, too. I, I have to give it to them. It was always a pleasure to, to work with them. Okay. Okay. You stay,
0: you. you stay well. It was, it was nice talking to you.
1: Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.
0: You know, many times when you get a chance to talk to your idols, they don't live up to your expectations, but Carol was so gracious. I just love her even more now. You know, we've all heard those stories of the competition between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. One band trying to top the other. The Beatles came up with Rubber Soul. and Then Brian Wilson created pet sounds, and when the Beatles heard that, they took their creativity to a new level, giving us all Sgt. Pepper. At the time, McCartney said of Pet Sounds, I love the orchestra and the arrangements, and Brian Wilson's inventive bass lines, Paul didn't realize until years later that that was the craftsmanship of Carol Kay. Sting once said in an interview that he learned how to play the bass from one of Carol Kay's instructional books. I do hope that you enjoyed this interview with the legendary Carol Kay as much as I did I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you back here next time. Take the fake show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes and thefakeshow.com